0: audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, "O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the boy saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Hear the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jake. Please be seated. Uh, You go ahead and throw that Raphael painting up there. Um, I thought it was a great transition uh, from last week to this week, a great transition from what we studied in the text last week to what we're going to study this week, is this painting called The Transfiguration uh, by Raphael. And of course, um, as many of you know, many of you may not know, uh, Raphael was a contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. He was um, um, an Italian painter and an architect, and he was um, an incredibly fruitful man. He he was prolific and, and productive. By age 37, he already had uh, around 50 pupils working for him in his workshop, uh, producing uh, works uh, for different uh, men and women, different royalties, and certainly the church is this is an example of, uh, he died at age 37, uh, did not finish this painting. One of his pupils uh, had to finish it <clears throat> for him. If you, uh, if you get a hankering to go see this, just go to the Vatican Museum in Vatican City, and uh, I'm sure it'll be rather inexpensive to get there. And uh, just go look at it. If, um, if you don't have that chance, then you can look at the screen while I talk to you about it. Um, I, I thought this was a good way to segue between last week and this week. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark together for quite some time. And, uh, and last week, we studied the transfiguration, which is, is, uh, which is given to us by Raphael at the top half of the picture, or, or the top 35% of the picture, let's say. And, and as you look at, uh, up there, you can see uh, Elijah and Moses uh, floating around Jesus. And you can see Jesus up in the air. And we don't know if Jesus is in the air or not. But we do know that he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, who are on the ground um, in dismay um, and, and worship, we, we'll, we'll hope, and uh, evidently what happened at the Transfiguration, if you weren't here last week, I can't reteach that material, but the veil of Jesus' body that, that was, that um, was the veil, it was holding in his glory to some extent, uh, that just for a little while, Peter, James, and John were able to go up um, this mountain, which is 9,200 uh, feet above sea level, so it was more than that little anthill um, that Raphael has portrayed there. But uh, they were able to go up with Jesus and, and Jesus said that for, um, for your faith and for your ability to walk through the hard times that are gonna come, I'm gonna show you an example of my glory. I'm gonna show you how this is all gonna end. And so his, his, the veil of his body is taken away and, and he's, he, he emanates, he radiates, he shines with the glory of God. And uh, so if you look artistically, if we just think about this as art critics, uh, up top you got, um, you got lack of gravity, you've got light, Um, you've got goodness, you've got clouds, you've got lots of promise. Essentially, you have heaven on earth. That's what happened at the transfiguration. And and below, 9,200 feet below sea level, 9,200 feet below, you have hell on earth. That's the text we're gonna look at uh, today. You have darkness, um, you you have uh, chaos, you have death, you have accusation, you have argument, you have finger pointing, you have lots of talking, you have little listening, Um, If you look at the bottom half, you you realize how amazing it is that Jesus did not go back up with Moses and Elijah and the booming voice of God into heaven, but it's just absolutely gracious and fantastic that he decides to come back down and walk down into this chaos, down into this hell, uh, down into this place where without his presence, Satan is winning, I mean, without Jesus's presence and without his power in his disciples and, and on display, Satan is winning, death is reigning, uh, and a little boy is getting the worst of it. So if you look down below, you can see some of what is described in verses 14 and 15 for us. Uh, 14 and 15, that has lots of information, lots of detail, but there's real, no real focus. And, and Mark's trying to let us know that, that Jesus is walking into chaos, With Peter, James, and John. You see the guy down at the bottom left with the blue, the blue, um, a uh, uh, shirt on and the big old law book, that's the scribe. He's there explaining why they're not able to throw the demon out. He's there taunting them with their inability. Um, if, you look, uh, if you look at the, the guys pointing up towards the transfiguration, they're all wearing red. And, um, and although there's no way that these men could have known what was happening up on the mount, this is Raphael's way of saying, the only thing that's gonna help us get through what we're experiencing right now is to remember who Jesus truly is and where he's taking us. And then if you, if you keep looking at the characters, there's this, um, there's this woman right in the middle in striking contrast. You see her right here at the bottom um, with beautiful light skin um, and a beautiful pink shirt, uh, dress, or whatever you would call that thing. Um, she, she's the only one that looks at all peaceful down below. And, and you can imagine um, uh, critics and historians and biblical scholars have tried to figure out who in the world is Raphael trying to portray there? And of course, he died, so we can't ask him. My, my personal opinion is that that is um, the woman or one of the women that followed Jesus and his disciples around and take care of him out of their means. In Luke chapter seven, there's a story about Jesus um, standing up for a prostitute who ha- has repentant faith, and he stands up for her instead of a professional religious guy. And then after that, it says in, in chapter eight that there were lots of women that would follow Jesus around and, and basically... It says that he, they deaconed him. They, they served him out of their means. And then Luke, one of the next stories in his gospels is the, is the transfiguration of this story. That's just my, you don't have to know that to get into heaven. That's what I think it is. Uh, and if you keep looking, um, keep going over to the right-hand side, you can see the dad who, who is there and presumably the mom both wearing green. And um, you can see that the dad is holding on to a little miniature Hedo Turka glue, um, which is right there. And and I can say that because it ends really well for Hedo, as you know from the end of the story. But but we we actually have no idea how old this little boy is. It calls him a boy, it calls him a son. One time, it calls um, the dad the father of a child, which is the Greek word for little boy. So most likely, this is just a little boy. And and, um, Raphael's portraying him large enough to show you how tense his muscles are, to show you his eyes rolling back in his head, to show you the assault that he is under by a demon. And this is what Jesus walks down into. On, on his way, walking from heaven back down into hell on earth, Jesus's three favorite are gonna try and talk him out of suffering. I, I can't spend a lot of time there, but if you look at um, verses nine uh, through 13, this is essentially what's happening. Is it, on the way down the mountain, Jesus says, all right, I don't want you to talk about this until I've resurrected. It's the first time that Jesus says, be quiet, but gives them a time frame. He's like, no one's gonna understand what you're telling them. No one's gonna believe what you're telling them about the transfiguration until I've been resurrected. And then everyone's gonna see my glory. Everyone's gonna know that I'm the eventual champion, but I have to go through death into life. I have to go through the cross into the throne. And so he says, at the end, uh, after my resurrection, that's when you can talk about it. And so Peter, James, and John talk, they keep it to themselves. They're somewhat obedient, but they're just really confused by this rising from the dead stuff. I mean, why does Jesus, the one that was just transfigured in front of him, the one that was just hanging out with Moses and Elijah, I mean, the one who God said, listen to him, why does he keep talking about rising from the dead? And so Peter comes up with this brilliant idea. He says, hey, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? that's just a cagey way for Peter to say, why do you keep talking about suffering? Because see the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, the one right before Matthew, there's a prophecy about Elijah coming back. And when he comes back to restore all things, he will make way for the son of man to come back and the Son of Man will bring in the great day of the Lord, when when God will rule and reign and there will be no evil and everything's gonna be totally life and everything's gonna be totally okay. And so and so Peter's reminding Jesus in a cagey way he's saying, We just saw Elijah, that means that you can just go ahead and sit on the throne and rule and reign forever. So why do you keep talking about this suffering? And Jesus is like, yes, um, Elijah did come, but it's not the one you just saw at the transfiguration. Actually, John the Baptist was Elijah and they did to him whatever they wanted, but he did prepare the way in Malachi 4. He fulfilled that prophecy in bringing Israel to repentance because Malachi is very clear that John the Baptist, or excuse me, that Elijah would come, call the people to repentance, and that would prepare for the great day of the Lord. And Jesus said, but you're forgetting Isaiah 53. You're forgetting that the Bible also says that the son of man must suffer many things and go through horrible realities to move into his kingdom. So Jesus shuts down his favorite three. If you miss all that, no big deal. Uh, can you put that back up, please, on the screen? Um, so he comes back down into this, into this chaos, Okay, and um, and he walks up to his other nine disciples, and he says, "What are you guys arguing about with them?" And they don't answer. <laughs> they don't answer. But but before we keep going in the story. Um, I'd like for us to just do a little icebreaker here. I mean, we, we can't do an icebreaker to where you guys all tell me your answer, but I'd like to act as though we were sitting in a small group and I came up with this really cool icebreaker where we'd all tell one another the answer to this question. And the icebreaker is this, where do you see yourself in that picture? Like, where are you at right now? What's going on in your life and world? Who do you identify with? What do you identify with? Let's say, first of all, you identify with Peter, James, and John. John. You're on a mountaintop right now. Everything's going really well. Everything's just fine. It's all glory. There's little pain. Uh, there's little chaos. There's little argumentation. You're on a little honeymoon of sorts. Maybe you're on vacation. Who knows what's going on? But, but that's one option is to be the disciples up on the mountain. You're, you're a mountaineer. Uh, if that's who you are, I want to let you know the sermon's not for you. sermon's for some people that come later, sections three and four. But I just want to let you know that the Bible says very clearly, Jesus promises that our life is going to be full of affliction and suffering and pain. And so sometimes God gives us mountaintop experiences, but they are by definition different from the rest of reality. That's why they're called mountaintop experiences. And so when I begin to talk about what is it gonna be, what is it that connects us to the resurrection life of Jesus? What connects us to hope? What connects us to whatever it is that's gonna pull us through painful, hard, devilish circumstances? I hope that you will remember something about this sermon. Right now, it's not gonna be very applicable to you, but I hope that in time it is. Uh, the second option is, is maybe you're part of the crowd. <clears throat> maybe you're some of these people surrounding the disciples. And that is to say, you're just kind of meandering around, going to and fro, looking looking for some way to have life. You're looking for some entertainment. You're looking for something to watch. I mean, first there's an argument. Who doesn't like to watch an argument? It says the crowds were all gathered around. Like, go, 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 get them. And then it says Jesus walks in and like, hey, there's that, major, there's that amazing prophet. Let's go greet him and let's see if he'll do something amazing for us. And then when, when the boy is going through a horrific convulsion, um, it, it says that, that they, they, they gathered around Jesus again, either to watch the boy die or to watch Jesus do something amazing. And so secondly, you know, some of us are are crowd members. We're just kind of running to and fro looking for the next bit of entertainment. And I would like to argue that maybe you should join group three. Maybe if your life's going well enough right now that you're able to just kind of meander around and look at other people in pain, maybe you could join the disciples. The disciples are group three. The disciples are these people that are not necessarily related to the boy or the dad, but who have it on their agenda. It is their desire. It is part of who they want to be to help bring healing and redemption to other people. Maybe instead of going around looking at all the pain, we could go around and be a part of the solution for the pain. But I'll tell you that you'll have to get a better example other than the disciples if you want to be very effective. So at least want what the disciples want, but let's learn the same lessons that the disciples are gonna learn. So maybe you are, uh, you're, you're in the third group, which is the disciples. Or, or maybe if we were to ask this in a small group, you would point at the dad or the son and say, that's me. Right now I feel assaulted. Right now I'm in pain. Either me or people I really love are getting the crap kicked out of them. And I I don't know what else to tell you other than I, I feel like that demonized boy right there. Or I feel like his dad. I mean, you see this, what the dad, you see what Jesus does? How long has this been happening to him? Jesus singles out the boy and the dad said, hey, if you could have compassion on us and help us, we'd really appreciate it. The dad and the boy are not separate. They're two in unbelievable pain. Luke tells us this is his only boy. He's a little toddler who Satan is trying to destroy. This sermon is gonna start out and be for people who are number four and include people that are number three. I wanna talk to us about how do we connect to the resurrection life and hope of Jesus when we are under attack and being assaulted. Do Do you see... Do you see the condition that the boy's in? Let's just go back to the text and look at it. Let's look at what this dad and this boy are going through. Look at verse 17. The dad says he has a baseline condition. He he has a spirit that makes him mute. Jesus in verse 25 is gonna say that the spirit causes deafness and mute. So he, he can't hear and he can't speak. So he can't communicate everything that's going wrong with him. But then the dad continues. It's not just that this spirit It's not just that this spirit makes him deaf and mute, but this evil, unclean demon also occasionally will seize him or arrest him, will violently slam, dash, or throw him to the ground. And when this happens, he will foam at the mouth, he will grind his teeth, he will become rigid with exhaustion. So in other words, so much evil energy courses through this little boy's life and body that at the end of it, he's rendered unconscious. Listen, Satan like a lion prowling around trying to devour people. What Mark describes here is classically understood as epilepsy. In fact, Matthew describes it as an epileptic seizure. But then Matthew lets us know that in this instance, that in this case, not in all epilepsy, but in this case, what is behind the mask of epilepsy is a demon trying to kill this boy. This sermon is for us who would say, I associate with the boy and with the dad or I wanna be part of the guys trying to help them. How how do we connect to the resurrection power of Jesus? How do we bring the resurrection, hope-filled, life-giving power of Jesus to people in our lives who are in unbelievable suffering? And we're going to answer the, just one basic question because the answer is faith but we got to we got to be careful to define what faith is <laughs> because if we kind of go with what the tv tells us faith is we'll never make it if we go with what we intuitively think of with faith we'll never make it we'll just find ourselves with the disciples completely ineffective but the answer is faith and the flip side of that coin is going to be prayer So there's just two two main ideas today. What is faith and what is prayer? And if I describe faith well, if I can explain it from the text accurately, the few sentences I need to say on prayer will be very short because faith and prayer are two sides of the same coin. And if you can understand what faith is, you will be able to see very easily what the communication of it is to God. And so that's what we're gonna talk about is faith and prayer. First, look back at your Bibles. Look back. I mean, this, is, this entire text is all about faith. Anytime the same word comes up over and over and over in the Bible, that's a Bible study technique to let you know that the writer is trying to say something to you. Do you see in verse 19? And Jesus answered, and we're gonna come back to this, O oh, faithless generation. G- Jesus is saying He's calling his disciples an unbelieving generation. Remember in our translations, like the ESV, which I normally preach from, when you see faith or belief, it's the same Greek word. When you hear it read as faith, like this one, a faithless generation, that's because it's either a noun or an object or an adjective. When you see in verse 23, all things are possible for the one who believes, or verse 24, I believe help my unbelief, our translation, the ESV will give verb, will translate a verb as believe and the noun as faith. But it's the exact same, exact same word. So what I'm telling you is that it's, it's all about faith. This entire text is all about faith. How do you connect to the resurrection power of God when all hell is breaking loose? It, it is only in faith, but it's got to be understood as what Jesus sees faith to be. So let's pick up, and, and we left off at verse 16. What are you guys arguing about? Let's just walk through the text together. If you have your Bibles, get them out, <clears throat> or it's on the, the insert in the worship folder. So the disciples ignore him. That's gonna be a bad sign, Uh, Just so you know, in life, when things are going crazy, a lot of times, Jesus might be tapping us on the shoulder saying, what's going on? And we just basically ignore him. But the dad seizes the opportunity. He said, "I, I brought my son to you for an exorcism, but your disciples were not able to cast the spirit out in your absence. And so the father is communicating to Jesus that he doubts Jesus's abilities because of his disciples' inability. We'll keep going with that theme in a moment. And so Jesus speaks first to the disciples and then to the dad. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, my job is to explain to you what I think is going on in the passage, but I'd like your help here. How how would you characterize these words of Jesus to his nine disciples? And I'm thinking he might be including Peter, James, and John in this. How, How would you describe how long do I have to bear with you Would you call it disappointment? Maybe weariness? Maybe a little exasperated? Maybe he's close to heartbreak? Frustrated, annoyed, miffed, peeved? I don't know, we'll pick back up on that in a second. And then he says to someone, bring him to me. So the child is brought to Jesus and in response, the demon throws the child to the ground and he began to roll about and foam at the mouth. It's very important for you to understand this. What is going to happen now between Jesus and the dad happens while this little toddler is on the ground in the grip of demonic forces. Shockingly, Jesus doesn't help the boy. He dialogues with the dad. Now, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but Uh, maybe many of you don't have children yet. My guess is because we don't offer childcare at this service um, for older ages, you don't. But when Maddie broke her elbow um, probably 16, I don't know, 16 months ago, um, I took her to CentraCare, which is one of these places you can just drive up. And it was clearly, obviously, gruesomely broken, okay? They're, They're... and I was holding this little daughter of mine at the time, she's probably six. I'm holding her in my arms. I am falling apart. Like I am in shock myself. I don't know what's going on. I'm nervous that my little daughter may lose a limb. I mean, I am just absolutely hysterical. What happens to her is happening to me. My emotional energy and metabolism is going into this little girl. And I walk up in the reception, this is, um, she sees me walk up. I ask her a question and she's like, oh, hold on a second. I gotta take a phone call takes a cell phone out of her pocket, moves towards the back and begins to chat with a friend about what she's gonna do after work. I was a little peeved. I was a little frustrated. It doesn't really matter what's going on here. All, all I'm letting you know is I, I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. He, he, he doesn't get down on the ground and hold the boy down so he doesn't hurt himself. He, he, he doesn't um, pray over him. He, he doesn't exercise the demon. He says, hey, how long has this been happening? Just so you know, Jesus is taking the dad to the end of himself. He's taking the dad to the point of exhaustion. He's taking the dad to the to the point of inadequacy and insufficiency. And so the father answers, well, he's been like this since childhood. And then the father escalates it a little bit just so he can let Jesus know you're not paying attention to what is most important right now. He says he is trying to destroy him. He says, look, he, he convulses his body. He throws him to the ground savagely. He rolls him around and courses so much energy through him that he's unconscious when he's done. And he tries to do it in water and fire because if he's unconscious on the ground, it's probably not a big deal. But if he goes into water or fire, he's done. And he, this demon is trying to kill my son. And the dad says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus keeps working. Jesus keeps talking. Jesus continues to go to the place where the Father needs to be, which is the place of faith. It almost feels like he's mocking him. What do you mean if I can? It's up to you and it's up to your faith. It's not about my inability, it's, it's about your inability. The Father in desperation Speaks, you gotta hear this. This is the part that's most important. The father in desperation speaks the most faithful response possible. He yells a helpless cry and says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I I have faith. I don't have faith. I, I trust but I distrust you. It's honest, it's humble, it's dependent. He is saying, I am riddled with doubts. Let me tell you what faith is not. If faith is, was what we tend to think that it is, if faith was what the TV tells us that it is, if faith is what our culture says it is, then this man is done. This would be Jesus' response to him, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus would have to say, the faith meter is not far enough. How dare you come to me with these doubts? Confess all known sins, purify your heart when you're ready to surrender to me completely, when you're ready to fall back and not bend and land in my arms, then I want you to come on back and that's when I'll be here and I'll be here to help you. I got really fantastic news. I got amazing news. Faith is helplessness. Do you see the emphasis on help here? Helplessness is the idea that I cannot help myself. I am weak and I am dependent. And faith in Jesus to be okay with that information is the faith that Jesus is saying will draw us through death and hell itself into the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I can't help myself. I'm completely and utterly dependent upon you. Do you see how the dad twice He says, Will you please help? No, no, he does not say, Will you please help us? Go back and look at this. It's in verse um, 22 and verse 24. Two times he commands Jesus to help them. He says, Have compassion. And out of that, help us. And then he says, help my unbelief. Our translation does not translate this well at all. This is him looking right into Jesus, second person singular, right in the eye. And he's commanding him with the command of help me in the middle of my unbelief and give me the belief that I need to get in and through these circumstances into your resurrection, life, and power. He is saying, I don't believe, but that's okay with you and you can still help me because your help of me is not dependent on what I do or how well I believe. Your help of me is dependent on what you do and how faithful you are. And I absolutely do believe and I want you to do something about the fact that I don't believe. It's not very clear and clean cut, I know, but that's what the passage says. It's not, I'll muster enough strength and then you should help me. It's not, I'm faithful, now bless me. That's faith in us. That's faith in our faith instead of faith in Jesus that allows us to say, I'm not faithful. Do you get the irony of that? To say I don't have faith is to ironically have faith in Jesus that he can still be enough for what we're going through. Don't we fight against this, though? I mean, doesn't this rub us raw at the core of who we are? We instinctively call helplessness and dependence failure. We think helplessness and dependence is failure. But Jesus considers helplessness and dependence success. Success. We run from places of inadequacy. We run from the places that make us feel insufficient and Jesus runs to us in those exact same places of inadequacy and insufficiency. It's like we're allergic to helplessness, but helplessness communicated through prayer is the faith that saves us. So if faith is acknowledging that you can't do it but that God can, then prayer is simply the communication, the direction of that faith towards Jesus. The faith that will not save, the faith that will not rescue, the faith that will not be effective in our friends' lives as we try to minister to them is the faith in our own faith. The only faith that will work is faith in the object, the person of Jesus. So with that being said, let's look at what Jesus does when he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, and he said, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. Most of them said, he's dead. Just a little word to the wise. We might leave this place in our pain and in our chaos and at that place where we were being assaulted and attacked. And we might say, oh, I get it. I've been having faith in my faith instead of faith in Jesus. This is going to make everything Okay. Do you see how yet again, when Jesus walks into a situation, things don't automatically turn rosy? They get worse. I can't tell you. Now, listen, it's awfully kind of Jesus to, lift out, to put his hand down there, to grab a hold of this little boy's hand, just like Jairus' daughter. We're supposed to see some parallels here, and he pulls her up, him up out of death. Now, scholars argue whether or not the boy's dead. The point is, is Mark is letting us know that this boy is dead if Jesus doesn't show up and do something for him. And he pulls him up out of death and he gives him life, but he only does it after things get worse and not better. In our lives, I just have to tell you, it's gonna take more than a few moments for us to experience this resurrection and it may take the rest of our life before we do. That's what we can learn for the verses 25 through 27. And then Mark provides us with this sweet little epilogue, verse 28 and 29. And this is the end of my sermon. (coughs) Mark does this a lot. The disciples are always confused. They're always bamboozled. They never quite get it, but they're always about to enter a house. This happens four times and they're always asking him privately what's going on and they're like, why couldn't we cast it out? I mean, that's, that's the question for those of us in category three. Why, why is my work in other people's lives so ineffective? This is what Jesus says. I'd like to ask you to think about this. I'd like for you to think about this with me. Is this sarcasm or is it patience? And he said to them, this would be how it would sound if it was patience. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Or if it was sarcasm, it would sound like this. Uh, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Scholars fight over this all day long, because they're like, what do you mean this kind? There, there's no other indication in scripture that, that there's different kinds of demons, and some of them you have to pray for, and some of them you throw water on, and some of them you throw dice at. I mean, there's no indication of that. Jesus is, Jesus is saying this kind, like every other kind, can only be remedied through prayer. you get that? This kind can only, I guess I kind of did sarcasm first now that I think about it. This kind can only come out by prayer. I'm not really sure what Jesus is doing here. He's being incredibly patient. I know that for sure because he's gonna keep teaching these guys. He's going to go and die for them. He's gonna give his spirit to them. He is sticking with them. He's going to be perfectly patient with them. But I think Jesus is being a little sarcastic here and I think they know it because in verse 32, we're gonna find out that they were again trying to figure something out but they were afraid to ask. When I was growing up, my dad had this, this thing he would do. <clears throat> he had this thing that he would do when I got past the age where he stopped spanking me, and I, I think he probably stopped too soon. Um, <clears throat> but he had this thing that he would do when I was not where I needed to be or when I was not behaving the way I needed to behave or I was not catching on to what I needed to catch on to. He had this thing where he would grunt. Ugh, <clears throat> That would be an indication to me as an 18-year-old boy that I was not where I was supposed to be and my dad was letting me know and at the same time, he was not gonna leave me. That he was in this with me. That he's not gonna smack me. That he's not gonna send me out on my own. That he's gonna be patient with me. And these grunts, we still talk about them at family reunions. We, we try and grunt the way he did and we just laugh and howl. But they were an unbelievable mixture of patience and sarcasm all at the same time. And I, I think that's what Jesus is doing here. You see, what's really amazing about this. And the reason the disciples are asking the question is because we find out in chapter three that one of the things Jesus wants them to do in their ministry is exercise demons. And we find out in chapter six, when he sent them out on a trial run, that they were able to cast out many demons. And in three short chapters, they're rendered ineffective. And we don't really know What motivated this lack of prayer? We don't know what motivated them to say, the strength is in me and not in Jesus. We don't know if they just started doing a method. We don't know really what happened to them, but we know this. They tried awfully doggone hard for a long time to do something to help this man and this boy, and their minds never ran to their own helplessness, inadequacy, and insufficiency, and the amazing strength, brilliance, wisdom, and hope of Jesus that he gives to broken people who just have the faith to say I'm broken and ask for help. So the question becomes, okay, I can give you the fact that I can see how helplessness is a big part of the picture, and I can actually see some of that in my life, but how can I be sure, how can I be absolutely sure that Jesus will hear me and receive me when I come to him lacking faith. And this is how you can know because he did not receive and he did not hear and he did not respond to Jesus when Jesus had all the faith in the world and was hanging helplessly on a tree. Think about Jesus on the tree. I mean, He was most certainly nailed to it, probably even tied to it. Rome had designed this contraption to kill people to render you absolutely helpless, to to be unable to get off of it yourself, to just die on the tree. And Jesus, just like he's teaching us here, prays to God and God the Father does not hear him. He says, why have you forsaken me? But not only that, just like for the little boy and the dad, things got worse for Jesus after he prayed. After he prayed his helpless prayer, things got worse, not better. And the very last thing he said was the prayer of faith and trust into your hands. I commit my spirit. And he didn't get a response. The only thing that will melt our hearts and cause us to trust God with who we are in our weakness, in our inadequacies, in our rebellion, in our sin, in our wickedness, the only thing that will bring that about in our lives to trust him with the truth of who we are is to be melted by the beauty of Jesus in our place, receiving what we deserve on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for strength. I thank you for... (coughs) excuse me, a voice. I pray that something of what has been said today will go into our hearts and bear fruit for you and your kingdom. I pray that you would have comforted your people today. I pray that you would have encouraged your people. I pray for those of us on the sidelines, uh, just dashing about to and fro, that you will have called us into the work of your kingdom to bring healing and restoration. Lord, I pray that you will have exposed deep, helplessness in us and encouraged us to speak of this helplessness to you. We pray that you would save us, that you would change us, that you would make us new, that you would spread your kingdom through us and in us. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: Our restless spirits yearn for thee wherever I change life